Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on April 25th, Anzac Day 2018. I am your host, Jack Oswetsloot. My guest today, Aidan Foster Carter, is an honorary senior research fellow in sociology and modern Korea at Leeds. He is also a freelance analyst and consultant covering the politics and economics of both South and North Korea for, amongst others, the Economist Intelligence Unit, Oxford Analytica, not the much maligned Cambridge Analytica, the BBC World Service, and so on. Between 1971 and 1997, he lectured on sociology at the universities of Hull, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, and Leeds. A prolific writer on and frequent visitor to the Korean Peninsula, he has lectured on Korean and kindred topics to varied audiences in 20 countries on every continent. Aidan, I'd like to mention a book that uh, I have on my bookshelf at home, published in 1977, a volume edited and partly written by Australian academic Gavin McCormack and British journalist John Gittings. Uh, just to give a sense of the tone, one chapter on South Korea is titled South Korean Society, The Deepening Nightmare. Ooh. Now, the chapter that you contributed was called North Korea, Development and Self-Reliance, A Critical Appraisal. I'll just say that it mentions, as I recall, that despite some misgivings you have about the focus on uh, the, the Kim family and their relatives in North Korea, that you felt that North Korea still had a better chance of uh, being the successful Korea long after the uh, dictatorship in South Korea had crumbled. I think, let's, let's have it in the full glory. I think the words were tottering neo-colony. Thank you, the tottering neo-colony. Oh, okay. uh, dear. Uh, thank you for embarrassing me, 40 Jack. plus hey, years on. Yeah, how do you look back? There I am in print with, with, with embarrassment, obviously, and I'll try to explain without excusing. Partly it was a general moment and partly it was just me, not perhaps a very general moment. There, there currents of uh, ultra-leftism around in uh, the academy in the Western world, not, not among the proletariat, needless to say, they rarely are, of which I was a part. And uh, those of us of the third world bent, and I won't go into how I got into that unless you want me to, were looking for, I mean, it was it was common to, to adulate Cuba. A tiny bit of that still persists. I had a Mao badge, you know, not quite knowing he was the mass murderer and so on. And on the specific Korean thing, I mean, I just happened to have read a book actually by your compatriot Wilfred Birchett, a game oh, yeah. I bet I have that book. Which one was it? Again, Korea. I do have that book. There you go. So um, I was looking, I'd been in Africa and I was very angry about the poverty and I blamed it all on imperialism rather than anything else. I was looking for an exemplar of a small post-colonial country that had risen from the ashes. And in that frame of mind, I came across Birchett's book and he said North Korea was like that. The South Korean stuff, though, is, is really sort of unforgivable because I hadn't actually studied South Korea. No. So my, my warning to anybody now, I mean, probably almost nobody... nobody uh, among our listeners is liable to be led astray by that particular ideology but let's say don't you know don't let it read off your views from any a priori ideology at all it's much more likely to be sort of liberalism and things nowadays isn't it you've just got to look at the facts I hadn't looked at South Korea until I finally came here in 1982 right so that was about uh, well, uh, five years or so after you wrote that chapter or at least uh, after yeah a that's years. right and I actually thought about coming to South Korea when the opportunity came for a conference as a moral decision equivalent to going to apartheid South Africa that's how how, how stupid I was. Good heavens. And being an opportunist then and now, of course, I came and the scales fell from my eyes. But I guess that's another story. And, you know, you, you just couldn't overlook. The, apart from that, it is recognized that North Korea's economic development, immediate post-war reconstruction and a bit more, was earlier and faster than the South's. But quite honestly, that gap didn't last long, number one. And number two, still didn't excuse the difference between dictatorship and totalitarianism. Of course, South Korea was a dictatorship at that time, but never, let's be honest, let's be clear 
bigger on the scale of, you know, the gulags and the intense repression of North right. Korea then and now. Actually, I'll come back to uh, the question of uh, North Korea's economic growth in a, uh, uh, one or two questions from now. But So you're well known um, for writing about North Korea's economy and politics for decades. How is it possible, or how much is it possible, rather, to know things from afar, both through the lens of translation and through the prism of a country that doesn't really want to be accurately known and understood by outsiders? There are two very good questions there, and they're separate ones. I mean, a small, <laughs> perhaps only slightly smaller badge of shame than having believed very silly things about North Korea is that uh, despite a lifelong interest in Korea and despite three years sort of beavering away very part-time at the language, um, I never got to the point where it, I could actually use it. We could have a long discussion about that. Uh, it, there is, for North Korea, there are those, I, I'm, I'm encouraged that I believe in the uh, a previous podcast in this series, uh, um, Sumi Terry, no less, yeah. herself, I assume a Korean speaker, said, actually, you doesn't really need it for North Korea. Um, I'm sure she didn't say it's sort of same old garbage and it's all same old, same old in, uh, <laughs> in whatever language. But no, I mean, I don't feel too good about that, but I don't think it makes a huge difference for North Korea. Anyway, over about a third of a century as a serious analyst, and uh, I guess half a century, all told, good God, the information situation has greatly improved. I mean, this is not thanks, or not mainly not thanks to the DPRK regime. I mean, famously, they stopped publishing regular statistical series uh, in the 1960s. And we've had, we still have every year, we've just uh, a few weeks ago had the farce of a, the annual budget presented to the ah. Supreme People's Assembly without a single actual number in it. There are percentages, sometimes with decimal points, but we, we know not what they are percentages of. Yeah. I guess you just would need one or two more variables. I remember the South Koreans once heard something on the radio and you can, you can calculate it all back. So but not so much them, but then actually as, as a sort of uh, awful to think of anything good about the, the dreadful famine of the 90s. But I mean, that, of course, reduced engagement with international aid bodies, NGOs and others, as as uh, my compatriot Hazel Smith, who's mm. now I'm sure will be known to many listeners, uh, correctly points out, we've got. You know, not bad data on the sort of areas that they cover. Nutrition, um, when the North Koreans permit surveys, mm. which isn't always. Mm. Agriculture, I mean, FAO go, go in and so forth. Health, more widely, to some extent, education. There is a census and so on in a quite different way. Satellite data, you know, the, the way that... Um, a number of media now, you know, we, we, we could see the camps. I mean, yeah. for one thing, you can, and I gather this, you know, you can get crop information, etc. Visitors reports to a degree. So it's, I mean, I'm actually overwhelmed with information mm. nowadays. There's, there's too much that you know, no one's got time to read it all, even in English. I mean, obviously, the quality varies. You always have to exercise your own judgment. Sure. But, so it's not like studying a normal country, obviously. I guess we all know that. But it's not impossible either. And of course, the, the, the eternal sort of sense of mystery about about it and uh, is, is, is a great driver. Well, we, we know, uh, for example, that even just census figures in North Korea are apparently a state secret, right? I mean, we haven't, North Korea hasn't publicly released census figures for some time. I don't think they put, produce them themselves, but the very fact that they are done in association with the UN, I'm going to get this one right, is it PFA population? Anyway, right. and at least on one past occasion with South Korean funding means they are known. There are other difficulties, certainly Nick Eberstadt, Nicholas Eberstadt, of AEI, who did yes. a, read a fantastic book about all this, I suppose 20 years ago now, so based on some much earlier censuses, and did on one occasion actually go to Pyongyang and get to talk to the statisticians. Wow. Which must have been a, a non-meeting of, of minds. I mean, he makes the point, that at least back then, they somehow they managed to consider the military, I mean, all, all million of them, mm. kind of weren't there. 
I'm not quite sure if that's still the case. I wonder if you could just sort of sketch for our listeners a, a brief overview of North Korea's economy. You mentioned earlier that they recovered fastest after the, uh, the, the trauma of the Korean War. How did it, what path did the North Korean economy take in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and where did things go wrong? such a big topic. I'm going to try and pick out the main points. Um, first of all, I mean, there's the coincidence that uh, the northern half of this peninsula seems to have almost all of the minerals except for yeah. a bit of tungsten and coal. So you could say they got lucky with that. Also, although this is never a theme that Koreans anywhere would, would, would like to particularly emphasize, in the Japanese era, that's when the first hydroelectric plants were built. The um, Hamhung as a chemical center, which remains to this day, goes, goes back to that period, etc., so you had a little bit of a basis. I think the Soviets probably nicked a bit, though I'm not as, as they did. In... They did. There was a report on that. that they yeah, took... yeah. Some of the Japanese factories were removed and taken to the Soviet Union, yes, kind did. of as a form of reparation. They so. did that in Manchuria as well and elsewhere. So you, you're, but you're starting in a, in a post-colonial, post-war already, I suppose, in 45, 48, and post-war again with a vengeance mm. in 1953 when the war that Kim Il-sung had unleashed was over and he saved his own skin and blamed other people for it. And then for a about 15 years, they did pretty well. There were very fast growth rates. They Obviously, there was a lot of rebuilding, but they also wanted to industrialize. And as early as that, they fell out with the Soviet Union, which I think would rather have had them as a supplier of minerals and raw materials. Rather ironic that 60 and 70 years on, that's pretty much what they've ended up as right. to, to China, sanctions permitting. But they wanted to do the full Stalin bit, uh, to have a, a balanced economy uh, producing all sorts of stuff. And for a while, with, uh, crucially, with the help of the Soviet Union. I mean, I, I, if, uh, many judgments about North Korea may be sort of questioned, but the claim of economic self-reliance, mm. not just Juche, but Jalip, I think is their word, is a lie. It's a lie from beginning to end. They have always taken other people's money. Yeah. Um, they've always actively sought it. And then, of course, they are unbiddable in terms of how they actually spend it and in terms of paying it back, which sort of spoiled the relationship with the Soviet Union. By the late 60s into the 70s, you had, for example, quite a, a mechanism mechanized agriculture or in the inimitable language mechanized chemicalized mm. um, of course that came back to haunt them the soil's exhausted yeah. now but how you know with, uh, there was enough cheap cheap oil provided electricity so you could pump uh, you know irrigations you know, pumps go uphill which is not terribly easy if they're relying on gravity. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very it's significant, I think, that at a later phase, they started building massive canals, which were simply gravity-fed when they could, when the, when the money ran out after, but I'm running, running ahead a bit there. So this form of development was always, I think, limited in time. We know that from Stalin, eventually sort of tight central planning creates an economy more complex than it can actually run. That was one thing. Also, from the mid-late 60s onwards, uh, military spending Spending, never small, greatly increased. Uh, we think we know the number of the phenomena of, of the late 60s, the Pueblo and so on, that, that Kim Il-sung got particularly aggressive or paranoid or whatever. And they actually, a seven-year plan was postponed to become a 10-year plan, so they had to formally admit that. So it all started creaking, breaking down, and then the body blow, of course, was the collapse of the Soviet Union, and more precisely, the ending with that, even before the Soviet Union as such ceased yeah. to exist. And that produced the catastrophe of the famine. That, in turn, apart from killing we still don't know quite how many people. I mean, the estimates are sort of between about 1 million and 3 million, which beggars belief when you think it's a population of, what, 24 million and so on. That induced 
great socio-economic change because clearly the state was not going to provide if you relied on the state to provide you died uh, and so markets began to grow up so you had then the origins of today's mixed economy where both at the state level and at household level very often you know one the husband might have a state job and the wife might well be in, in business and that obviously produces a different very interesting kind of society and of course uh, the North Korean state wasn't at all like it, it felt it couldn't stop these things I mean under Kim the late Kim Jong-il it tried to from time to time yeah. rolling back markets one of the changes under Kim Jong-un is as far as we can see the rollback has stopped uh, indeed uh, got the young man's name now in NK Pro about markets into law Peter Peter Ward Peter Ward that's it although they still don't go around proclaiming to get riches glorious like China, right. China you know, I still think it's very odd that you've got a kind of semi unannounced the reforms I mean right from 2002 onwards were never promulgated but you know so we're a complex mix economy and of course underperforming like crazy even though it's doing better than perhaps some people have thought despite of sanctions but you know, you, we've got the magnitude data out there from the South Koreans from the Bank of Korea I mean the, the everything that produced in South Korea and even factoring in that the population here is twice as big mm -hmm. is many multiples I mean when it comes to exports it's more than a hundred times greater in South Korea yeah, yeah. it's just so and uh, physically you know, I think it's, it's again an established fact uh, South Koreans are taller uh, North Koreans and, and, and all of that stuff. Really, it's a, it's, a, it's a very sad story at the end of the day of, mm. of sheer perverse um, marching to a different drum in, in, a, in a wrong direction. Do we have any idea how much money uh, North Korea spends a year on its military? There's, there are lots of guesses, and I'm not... Um, or as a percentage of GDP? That, well, we, well they, they actually give us a every single year in the budget. They yeah. tell us they spend, it's usually of the order of 15.8% of the budget. I think one thing one might say is that thanks to the aforementioned, uh, you know, orders of magnitude difference between everything in between South and North, yeah. sort of, they spend much less than South Korea does. Right. Well, be, yeah. So it's still very important. And the, the, again, huge changes going on there where, where the KPA is still theoretically very large still sort of 10-year conscription and stuff but by all accounts and I'm not primarily a military expert at all but you know once you have your the, the, the whole WMD thing is the whole pursuit of nuclear weapons and, and the missiles to, to, to launch them mm -hmm. is to create what I believe are known as asymmetrical capabilities so I mean it does, obviously that stuff costs it must yeah. cost a lot but okay. it may cost less than maintaining lots of uh, aging MiG fighters, Jet fighters and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and stuff like that and then and there's the whole cyber capability, which probably is pretty cheap. Yeah, that's right. Do you think that the current regime of, uh, of international and bilateral and unilateral sanctions will, will make the North Korean economy contract this year again? It seems pretty clear that the latest lot are having some impact, especially as China, uh, has, for once, has, has seems to have been enforcing them. And we, we, we work that out from some very large falls in mm. most categories of, of Chinese trade with North Korea. And as I'm sure listeners know, China basically constitutes North Korea's foreign trade, and right. something of the order of 90%. But again, we don't have these data. Um, the Bank of Korea, God bless them, the South Korean Bank of Korea, for 20 years now, has been producing its annual estimates of North Korean growth. I and a number of other people thought that in a period a few years ago, they seemed too low. The Chinese managed to get the North Korean economy on a sort of viable export footing so that it was, it was actually trade rather than aid. Exports soared. I haven't got the data right in front of me. It never showed up in the BOK mm -hmm. estimates. And that seems odd. And you know, again, people anecdotally visiting Pyongyang, at least. I'm not so sure about other places who sort of note seeming signs of you know, construction, vigorous, greater prosperity, etc., etc. But maybe 
maybe the you know the latest sanctions will will, will curb some of that. But now you're on the maybe on the cusp of a different period where they, maybe they'll they'll be eased and we'll see. Let's imagine best case scenario that all sanctions were lifted at once after the upcoming summits. Would the North Korean economy, as it currently functions, be able to pick up and become sustainable in terms of growth? No, not unless. I mean, they they need capital. They desperately need capital investment. I mean, from outside. Yes, because they have no internal sources, and you know, nothing is very productive enough to generate the capital internally. It would have to come from outside. I suppose to be to be fair, the the outset in South Korea that was also the case, but it's far worse. I mean, the whole infrastructure is shot to pieces. I think again, people know that. I mean, the uh, well, a lot of power shortages. The trains go incredibly slowly. The roads um, are very bad. Etc. Etc. So no, they would need a lot of capital investment, which of course sanctions forbid. But also, it's it's quite a difficult business environment for other reasons. Aforesaid infrastructure, <laughs> you can't even get to places, and they steal. You know the the story of the you know the the, the, the habit of not paying people back, mm. which goes right back to the early Soviet days and goes right through. And there's a, some fairly well known tales of Chinese business that got stung. Others though haven't clearly. There's a lot of Chinese businesses in there now. Western banks that never got repaid from the 1970s, etc., etc. So there's a, they've got a lot to live down. What do you make of the case of uh, the Oroscom joint venture, Cordialink? Well, several things one could say in sort of perhaps reverse chronological order. A lot of it falls foul now of the current sanctions. But before that, the North Koreans again had had shafted them, to be technical, as far I gather, because they simply didn't let them take the profits out. And well, I think they set, out, they set up... South Korea always used to do this back in the day. They set up... The, the partner set up a joint venture... Sorry, set up a, its own firm in competition with the joint venture. Yeah. From my recollection of the story, uh, the, the big factor was that, of course, North Korea has two exchange rates. They could have taken their profits offshore, but only at the very unfavorable exchange rate, oh, the official was it, yes. exchange rate, not at the uh, the market exchange rate. By the way, they weren't the first. Loxley of Thailand had a pre-3G a mobile network, and so again, I don't know quite what happened to them. Let's turn now to inter-Korean relations. In a piece that you wrote for Comparative Connections this last January, you wrote that you first expected North Korea to welcome a progressive president in South Korea when Moon Jae-in was elected, uh, and then how you later realized that you were wrong about that after North Korea snubbed him a few times. But then you point out that Kim Jong-un's New Year speech marked a distinct change, and now this week there are unconfirmed reports in the media that a peace treaty is on the cards and North Korea wants complete denuclearization. Uh, Leaving aside some of the hyperbole, to what do you ascribe these sudden shifts in North Korea's stance? There are different views. I guess there are two broad views, aren't there? I mean, one is that he has a cunning plan, a master plan. So in terms of snubbing Moon, which did exercise me and puzzle me, I mean, I was just impatient. He was just biding his time. He was waiting for the for the moment. And he chose the moment well with the Olympics and uh, got this process going that we see today. The a slightly different explanation, I think, you know, it's not exactly either or, it can be a bit of both, is that he has been brought to the table. I mean, hardly brought to his knees, I suspect, but um, that the pressure from sanctions, or let's just say, pushes in the same direction. So that could be two different motives. And so, yes, we are now at the beginning of, we don't really know at this writing quite what, do we? A mm-hmm. interesting, exciting, certainly different and more hopeful phase. I've also heard a, a third possible theory. Uh, uh, Donald Trump's bellicose rhetoric uh, had a, and un- unpredictability had a lot to do with uh, Kim Jong-un choosing to talk now. It could be, it could uh, be. 
Yeah, we, we, we reluctant we as I am to give Donald Trump credit for anything. But well, again, that is prejudice, and we must all set aside our prejudices. Now, speaking of Donald Trump uh, and Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un, I, I wonder if I could give you a, ask you to give a quick assessment of each of the leaders of the six nations that were once members of the six party talks as to how they what's their position how are they doing at the moment so let's start with moon jae-in where's he his not mine originally i mean he's said several times i think that his aim is to get south korea back in the driver's seat on the situation i think it's often rather worrying particularly last year sort of on the sidelines while you know kim and, and donald trump are trading right. insults about whose button was bigger and, and all that nonsense you know i would say though that moon jae-in is now president moon uh, in the front passenger seat uh, holding a map okay. which hopefully is of his devising behind the wheel i'm afraid i do think it's kim jong-un who okay. it's his u-turn on on uh, in his january the first speech that that started all of this and we still wait to find out his motives and how far he's prepared to go donald trump is sort of alternately breathing fire and sort of, or sort of currently sort of back slapping and uh, he's probably trying to muscle in uh, in the front seat as well which is going to make a bit of a squash isn't it you've got Abe desperately trying to get into the back seat please talk about abductees you've got Putin skulking on the sidelines pretending he doesn't want to get onto this car when he definitely does and I can't, it doesn't work quite so well for China unless the car is in fact Chinese right, um, well, <laughs> or maybe the road is Chinese or the yeah. car is sitting on a Chinese flatbed truck and that could be right or actually I suppose in the context of the uh, since we had the first interview that got wiped the, the dreadful dreadful accident of Chinese on a vehicle in North Korea may make this metaphor tasteless. I didn't intend that, obviously. Given it, it, given geography, given history, given the eco economic links, China's always going to have a huge role. In a March 6 piece you wrote for NK News titled A Third North-South Summit, What Might It Achieve? You wrote about your old heart being broken too often before. You've watched the Korea since the 1970s, so you've seen ups and downs and roller coaster cycles of crises and rapprochements. Do you think this time is any different? In other words, will we possibly see ourselves in much the same place in another five or ten years? Well, that's partly my fear, and it is partly, I think, a tension between heart and head. And I guess people might say, hang on, analysts aren't supposed to have hearts, at least not professionally. But it's it's difficult. I mean, I think anyone who's engaged with Korea, you know, you can hardly be unaware of the the story of tragedy that was much of the certainly the first half of the 20th century and onwards of the tragedy of national division the very real tensions that have existed on this peninsula ever since the war was fought to a you know no formal conclusion all that even before the nuclear issue came along the human rights issues blah 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 so you would you would love it all to get better and because i am a sunny optimist by temperament i mean i've allowed myself particularly in 2000 i was very hopeful at the time of the sunshine policy when it was all fresh and new and then we went backwards for various reasons which are mainly the north koreans although obviously the 10-year period of conservative rule in south korea after the second summit which undid the second summit i thought the second summit was pretty good i hadn't expected it to be uh, shouldn't have been in pyongyang obviously i mean there's a lack of reciprocity i think in the uh, the, the old sunshine yeah. policy. economic cooperation i think if that had happened we might have gone down a different path but of course we had already had one nuclear test so maybe north korea was already set so i mean it would be absolutely wrong to have to sort of shut it down a priori in your own mind it can't possibly work can't possibly work because uh, admittedly it, it is intellectually hard given the great difference in positions especially on the nuclear issue which i think are quite well understood now that when kim jong-un says denuclearization a word he may or may not have uttered or not, or certainly hasn't emphasized it, it may mean the whole peninsula etc etc given 
how far apart the known positions of the sides are. Just meeting doesn't really tell you how, how they're going to take it forward. But I, I, I have an open mind. I think I'm a little bit more optimistic, actually, than I was when I wrote that particular article. We are seeing, at least uh, for this summit uh, and around this summit, some interesting symbolism, some very different optics, as they might say uh, in the business. Kim Jong-un welcoming South Korean delegates into the Korean Workers' Party headquarters for a banquet. That had never happened before. The opening of a hotline directly between the two leaders, not just between the two sides. Kim Jong-un agreeing to cross over the the, uh, military demarcation line to come to the southern side to have a meeting there. So does this give you a sense that we're maybe in a little bit of uncharted territory this time? Is there simply a need to kick things up a notch because of the increased threat posed by North Korean nuclear-tipped missiles pointed at America? I fear it's the latter, but I do hope it's the former, yes. And I think, you know, the latest thing, I think the North have just allowed to let the uh, South Korean media, what, what in other times they call the reptile press, but we're not getting... <laughs> everyone's sort of laying off from that language, thank goodness, to cross the line in the other direction so they can um, actually start filming Kim Jong-un from the moment he starts. Wow. Waddling would be cruel. From the moment he starts walking across the across the the the, uh, the, huh. the military demarcation line. So maybe we are we are in new territory, and uh... I hope so. It, you know, history is not foreordained. You know, we do make it, although we are constrained by all my, all the stuff that's gone before and mm-hmm. fixed positions and things like that. It, it's very hard right now to sketch the shape of what a new thing will look like. But I mean, we we, we just have to wait and see. Now, in the same article, the March 6th piece, you wrote that the reopening of the Kaesong Industrial Complex couldn't happen as a result of the summits because it's illegal. Is it as cut and dried as that? Um, one of the many things I've learned by actually coming here and even in the internet age, and I think I can do it all from deepest Devon in England, I mean, being being back in Korea for a while, you know, and talking to people and so on. No, it probably isn't. I mean, the, the, the relevant clause of the relevant uh, UN sanction is entirely clear, but of course there are exceptions. Exemptions and so on, and just as in a small way, those were brought into play during the Pyeongchang Olympics. I think to allow, yeah. for example, Kim Jong Un's sister to visit. She's personally sanctioned, I think, by South Korea. Yeah. Okay, that's easy enough bilaterally to lift them. The UN stuff, it's slightly more difficult. But uh, in fact, yes, somebody pointed out in the meeting I did with NK News clients that that all the sanctions always have a let out clause. I guess you know, if lawyers are doing their job properly, right. then, well, every single thing that is ever written has an exception or exemption. Clause. Unless it's for the greater good or something, you know, mm-hmm. you have to apply. And maybe it gets a bit messy, but uh, there, there, there are there are ways to come back to your earlier point that what North Korean economy needs is uh, uh, external capital and, and inputs. The Kaesong Park is something that's there and ready to go any stage again, isn't it? Yes, I guess it hasn't rotted completely, has it? I mean, if we ever then cross the peninsula to the earlier one, you know, Hyundai's um, the Mount Kumgang zone, I mean, after 10 years, we're coming up to a 10-year anniversary, aren't we, since that yeah. poor lady was shot. That's, and, that's uh, right. It's, it's hardly, occasionally it got dusted down for the uh, family reunions, which we're not having at the moment. Now, we know that uh, Kim Jong-un likes basketball, and it was the occasion of the Winter Olympics that we used as the timing for this particular thaw. But is there something deeper here? What are we... To make of sports being the catalyst for uh, for these talks, it does seem 
established that he likes sport, having the whole odd Dennis Rodman connection mm. and all of that. On the other hand, sport in the past hasn't been sufficient. I mean, we, again, we must always learn from the past. So we had the only, what was it, three years ago, four years ago, we had the Incheon Asian Games uh, early in the Kim Jong-un era, and the North Koreans did send a team, and there was a lot of bickering. Um, they didn't send their cheer, cheering squad in the end because the South wouldn't pay to house them and lodge them. And then at the very end of it, uh, great excitement, briefly, when the North sent a very high-level team down here, or almost three of the most senior people, Bar Bar Kim himself, yeah. and they came. They saw, and they, as I gather, I think I wrote at the time, but again for NK News, sort of all of this a bit of a missed opportunity. And I've been told since, well, South Korea was really hoping there'd be some message from yeah. Kim Jong Un, and there was none at that point. So sport can sometimes just be sport. But, but uh, we, we, we clearly were, were quite a way on from that. Now he clearly had intended to use it, and maybe going forward, I mean, sports culture and things. You know, again, they go back a long way. Some of us remember when Korea, North and South unified, won yeah. the World Te- Women's World Table Tennis Championships in, held in Japan in, I think, 1991. I and they did it just that. once and never did it again. Yeah. So when I'm being pessimistic, yeah. uh, this is this was this is the heartbreak. They do it once and it's just not cumulative. What I'd really like to see is, you know, say sport culture, you can do it. They can start, you know, join, the archaeologists can start re-excavating mm-hmm. Manwalte Palace in Kaesong and so on, you know. And, and just keep doing it and yeah. not stop with no further reverses, please. Now, um, I'm going to make a, a, a fun diversion here, not related directly to the summits, but uh, you could say that the economy is in there somewhere. There's a book chapter that you co-wrote with your wife, I believe. Oh, yes. In a, a yellow volume. I think it's called North Korean Arts. Something like that. Published yep. by the University of Vienna. And it was uh, based on a, a conference and an exhibition put together by, is it Rudiger Frank? Absolutely, yes. And your chapter was on the uh, the exporting of massive monuments by the Mansudeh Art Studio, mainly to Africa, but also to other countries. Could you tell us a bit about that? What we tried to look at, and I really wish I'd love to have the time to do more, because there's a ton of stuff out there, is the arts as a medium of exchange in two directions between North Korea and the rest of the world. No small part of this, certainly in terms of bulk weight and so on. The Mansudeh Art Studio, surely the world's biggest art factory and of course the concept of an art factory shows a country that is not like many others but my goodness me they train loads of people who are really good at doing all the stuff that uh, I wanted to sound like an old buffer you know your western modern art you know this is not sort of dung on a cross and stuff this is people who can really sculpt and bait and draw and stuff and they uh, given that North Korea has been strapped for cash for a long time they have been for decades now you know if you were an African dictator or occasionally a democracy and you wanted a, a big statue of yourself or some freedom fighters called Pyongyang. They're now sanctioned, of course, so there'll be there'll be less of this now, mm. but there's a lot of it. I mean, endless tales, which I'm sure we don't have time for. The big one is the Monument of the African Revolution in Dakar, Senegal. Very controversial for a number of reasons, including that the figures are thought to, to look, or in first draft, would look more, more Korean than African. Oh, now, dear. That's happened in a few places. But also, the thing of it, it's, it's a guy. And he's, it's a family group, but there's the guy, the guy is centre stage and he's sort of pulling his wife along behind and he's holding the baby. And it cost a fortune and uh, there was a Senegalese trade. Senegal is a fairly free society. In fact, they've just had, they had an election and they got rid of the old guy who, who, who ordered this thing, ah. $150 million, not Goodness, quite how it was paid for. Senegalese trade unions complained that it was the Koreans brought in their own workers, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So you get, a, you get a bit of this <laughs> quite separately, the new state 
house in Windhoek, Namibia. Oh, right. And they had a lovely old colonial one, you know, downtown. It was probably too small. So there's this monstrous thing that they built. North Koreans have built outside. It ties with Swapo, go back to sort of liberation movement days and, and all of that. Botswana had a few. There's a lot in Ethiopia, which, of course, had its own period of Marxist rule. A hotel stuff, you know, sort of bland. Oh. Or, or big pictures of elephants, you know. You, you they, they will produce to order. Oh, hotel lobby sort of yeah, artwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's also the, uh, the Angkor Wat Panorama Museum in Siem Reap. I should have mentioned that, but that was, I think, since we wrote, or at least I've never been, and I wasn't so... Yeah, that's, 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 that's one of the most that's recent big, pieces. That's big stuff, isn't it? Yeah. They've always, of course, ever since Sihanouk days, I mean, they've had big links with Cambodia through various periods, I guess we could say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming back now to uh, to the summit, the summit talks, what advice would you give to Moon or Kim or both I really hope they will both enter uh, this this meeting with, uh, obviously, be much prepared for, with two things. I mean, one is a sincere heart, which I do not doubt in Moon Jae-in's case, mm. possibly a little constrained by ideology, because we all have our background and so on. I have no idea whether Kim Jong-un is entering it with a sincere heart. But secondly, a sincere heart is not enough anyway, necessary but not sufficient. You have to have a plan, a concept of where this, you know, we, a photo op is actually quite easy a nice banquet and we all go home and then the hard part begins Um, they must I think to have got this far because I guess neither of them actually wants egg on their faces yes this is the bit that at this stage I find hard to see and therefore I'm sometimes pessimistic but I absolutely don't want to rule out okay what do we do to actually undo not it's not just about a feeling of hostility it's not quite like I mean if some listeners will be aware of the Northern Islands but there are so many big actual issues what I mentioned again in my talk I mean, I don't hear these things discussed in the same breath. It's only in December that uh, a, a cryptocurrency exchange here in Seoul went bust after its second heist in less than a year. Mm. And everyone blames North Korea. Now, assuming that sort of that blame is is correct. I mean, South Korea has been under relentless hacking for a, a decade, you know, and there was the GPS stuff and there was, you know, they hacked into the defense ministry and got all the plans for decapitating them. You know, that's why. this has got to stop, hasn't it? So yeah. presumably it's, I, I liken it to an iceberg, you know, there'll be sort of the glitzy stuff above the surface, but there should be, for it to work, they've got to be hidden depths. I don't mind if they're hidden as long as they're there and being discussed. You know, Kim Jong-un, stop. So, you know, stop the cyber attacks mm. and and the thefts, you know, and and uh, and much else besides, of course, you know, the, the, the disarmament, tension reduction. You can get rid of a few guard posts and so on. You can switch the loudspeakers off. The South Koreans have already just done that, of course. Yeah. But what about all that? You know, those heavy artillery pieces in the North Point. You know, there's a, there's a big, big concrete agenda. One, well, obviously, you can't. It'll be a long process, the beginning of it. But where, you know, I hope they have an actual plan. I won't ask you to make any predictions of act- of outcomes from the summit, but. Let's just sort of unleash your inner optimist and look forward to a year from now. Absolute best case scenario, your dream scenario, what would be the the outcome and the follow through from the summit? The dream scenario is easy to say, but I'm afraid I don't expect it, which is that he, if I use this metaphor, you'll see why. Here, Kim Jong-un does a Libya and actually gives up all the nuclear weapons. Then all the sanctions cease and South Korea is immediately in there. you know, the, the Chevolan government in partnership, it'll be a bit retro from a South Korean viewpoint, but that you'll need them both. We'll just start rebuilding everything. And then, then they tear down the walls of the gulag. No, but I mean, that won't happen right away because obviously yeah, all the risks, huge risks for Kim Jong-un. I mean, sort of, he, he presumably wants to get 
the goodwill of his people, which he had a bit, but according to some uh, defector interviews, his people are getting a bit fed up now because life, you know, expected life to get better with him and it hasn't, hasn't really done, but it would start to get better if you do all that. But of course, then people are going to ask for their freedoms. I mean, hey, uh, you know, our leader can listen to K-pop and uh, he locks us up when we do. Mm. So also, you know, endless questions as to how you do that. Always in their minds, the fear of, of the Gorbachev thing. Um, they, you know, you when somebody tries to change their system and ends up with it falling down. They want the perestroika, the economic reconstruction, without the glasnost, mm. without the opening. Is that even sort of sociologically possible? And also it raises sort of, I guess, moral questions. You know, don't we want there to be freedom in North Korea? It's not just about the nukes. I guess the main thing, though, one thing at a time, yeah. I mean, peace on this peninsula, I mean, an assurance of peace. What we've actually got in Northern Ireland, we've still got two communities that hate each other and don't have much to do with mm. each other, except for a few sort of loonies on the fringe. The but actual, largely there's peace, isn't there? The sorry? Largely there's peace there. Yeah, the violence has stopped. Uh, or, okay, there isn't, of course, day-to-day violence between the Koreas as it is. There, I suppose you could say there is day-to-day violence within North Korea. <laughs> but, you know, that, they, that you would know there'd be no more Chonans that the, or you, well, it would be a lot more things, wouldn't it? You'd have to sort of uh, have a lot of disarmament of the KPA and, but then where does that leave the US troops and so on? But yes, some assurance of peace was, it's, uh, that's, uh, it's a very going to be very complicated to deliver that. Well, and that's a, a good note to finish up on then. Thank you very much uh, to Aidan Foster Carter. Find him at Twitter at FC Aiden, F-C-A-I-D-A-N, where all of his uh, shorter thoughts can be found. And don't forget, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website at nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news and analysis, and we hope to see you there. Uh, send feedback, comments, questions or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. And listen to us again next time. 